The Author to the Reader Courteous Reader As I considered what I had written concerning the progress of the pilgrim from this world to glory, and how many in this nation found it acceptable, a new idea came to me. Just as I wrote about the pilgrim going to heaven, so now I write about the life and death of the ungodly, and about their travel from this world to hell. I've titled this work, as you see, under the name and title of The Life and Death of Mr. Badman, a very proper title for such a subject. I have also written this work in the form of a dialogue to make it easier for myself to write and to make it more enjoyable for the reader. And while I've written it using this method, I've gone out of my way as little as possible to add my own observation of things. And I think I can truly say that, to the best of my knowledge, all the things I talk about here I propose as fact, as having taken place on the stage of this world, many times even before my eyes. Therefore, considerate reader, I present to you here the life and death of Mr. Badman. I trace his life from his childhood to his death so you can see with your own eyes, like in a mirror, the steps that start to have an effect proceeding from hell. While you are reading about Mr. Badman's death, you will also discern whether you yourself are walking in his path too. And let me implore you to refrain from the artful evasion of the truth and mocking because I say Mr. Badman is dead. Rather, seriously go to the word and ask yourself whether you are of his lineage or not, because Mr. Badman has left many of his relatives behind. Those near and dear to him cover the surface of the earth. Some of his people, like him, have gone to their eternal home, but thousands upon thousands are left behind, as brothers, sisters, cousins, nephews, and innumerable friends and associates. I can speak nothing but the truth and say there are very few fellowships, communities, or fraternities in the world that don't at least have some of Mr. Badman's friends and relatives included. We can rarely find a family or household in a town where he hasn't left behind either a brother, nephew, or friend. At this time, my aim is to reach a mark set up to shoot at a wide spectrum of people. Therefore, it will be almost impossible for this book not to hit its mark in many homes. About as impossible as the king's messenger rushing into a house full of traitors and finding only honest men there. I can only believe that this shot will find its mark with many, since our fields are so full of this game. But how many will it kill on the way to Mr. Badman's course, and how many will it make alive to the pilgrim's progress? That is not for me to determine. This is something only the Lord our God knows. He alone knows whom he will bless to receive such favor with God in the end. However, I have put fire to the pan, and doubt nothing but the sound of the shot will quickly be heard. I told you before that Mr. Badman left many of his friends and relatives behind, but if I outlive them, which is in question for me, I can also write about their lives. However, whether my life is longer or shorter, my current prayer is that God will stir up witnesses against them, people who can either convert or confound them, because wherever they live and spread their wickedness, 
They are the pest and plague of that country. England shakes and totters already because of the burden that Mr. Badman and his friends have wickedly laid upon it. Yes, our earth reels and staggers to and fro like a drunkard, because wrongdoing is heavy upon it. Scripture The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage, and its transgression shall be heavy upon it. Isaiah 24, verse 20 Courteous reader, I will handle this matter in writing to entertain you now, but only cross this threshold with this understanding, that Mr. Badman lies dead within. If your spare time allows, please enter in and see the state in which he is laid between his deathbed and the grave. He isn't buried, nor does he stink yet as he is designed to do before he lies down in oblivion like others before him have had their funerals performed with ritual ceremonies and respect, according to their greatness and grandeur in the world. So, too, Mr. Badman doesn't deserve to go down to his grave with silence. He, too, has a funeral according to his rewards. Four things are usual at great men's funerals, which we won't represent in the funeral of Mr. Badman, I hope, without offense. First, sometimes the dead are presented to their friends by a completely contrived persona. Their lives are represented by cunning men who portray the memorial of the deceased and their deeds with artifice so their survivors can be encouraged in their grief. I've endeavored to address this in my discourse of Mr. Badman. This is why I've drawn him into the open, to reveal his characteristics and actions from his childhood until he is old and gray. I've written about his life in pieces, including his childhood, as he blossomed into adulthood, and when he got old. Within these sections, I also discuss what he did during those times, as well as what he is capable of doing, taking into consideration his existing circumstances of time, place, strength, and the opportunities before him. Second. Usually, at great men's funerals, there are those symbols of their honor, including a shield or emblem bearing the family coat of arms. These are items received from their ancestors, or which have been thought worthy to include because they represent the deeds and exploits accomplished in their life. Here in this book, Mr. Badman has his, but while they vary from men of worth, they do agree with the value of his actions. They've all dropped in rank, leaving him only as an offensive, repulsive branch. His rewards are payment for sin, and therefore all he has left are the symbols of honor on the coat of arms, a stark reminder that he died without honor, that his end shall be a fool. Jeremiah 17, verse 11. Thou shalt not be numbered with them in burial. The seed of evildoers shall not be forever. Isaiah 14, verse 20. The funeral pageantry of Mr. Badman, therefore, is to display the symbols of a dishonorable and wicked life on his hearse, since his bones are full of the sins of his youth, as Job says, which shall be buried with him in the dust. Job 20, verse 11. Nor is it fitting that any accompany his funeral procession now at his death. People connected with him 
conspired against their own souls in life, people whose sins have made them dishonorable to all who will know what they have done. I have also given some attention in this little discourse regarding those who were his co-conspirators in life and who are tied to him at his death with a hint of either some great crime or other wrongdoing committed by them, or those whose judgments caught up with them and fell upon them from the just and avenging hand of God. All these are things either fully known by me as an eyewitness and earwitness, or that I have received from reputable sources who I am bound to believe. I have marginally noted them, so the reader can tell them apart from other things and passages contained in the narrative. Third, funerals of people of character have been honored with a suitable sermon at the time and place of their burial. But I haven't gotten to that yet. I haven't gotten any further than Mr. Badman's death. But, since he must be buried after he stinks out his time before those who come to view his body, I don't doubt that some such person will be appointed to be at the burial of Gog, to do this work in my place. Such will leave him neither skin nor bone above ground, but will set a sign by it until the barriers bury it in the valley of Hamangog. Fourth, at funerals there used to be mourning and weeping. But here also Mr. Badman differs from others. His family and friends can't mourn his departure because they don't have a sense that he is worthy of eternal punishment. Instead, they circle around him in the sleep of death and sing him to hell as he goes to that place. Good men count his death as no loss to the world because it will be a better place without him. His loss is only his own and it is too late for him to recover that damage or loss, even with a sea of bloody tears, if he could shed them. God has said he will laugh at his destruction. Then who will mourn for him, saying, Ah, my brother! He was nothing but a stinking weed in life, and no better in death. Such a person can be thrown over the wall without sorrow once God has plucked him up by the roots in his wrath? Dear reader, if you are of the race, lineage, stock, or character of Mr. Badman, I tell you before you read this book that you will not be in favor of the author or the book, because I have written about Mr. Badman. I condemn the wicked who die, and so pass sentence on the wicked who are alive. Therefore, I don't expect credit or kindness from you, because this story is about your relative's life and your deep-rooted love for your friend, his ways, his doings, etc., will stir up animosity in your heart against me. For this reason I am inclined to think you will tear, burn, or throw it away in contempt, and that you will wish me harm for writing such notorious a truth. I also expect to be burdened with disdain, scorn, and contempt because of you. You will vilify me with offensive language, saying that I lie and make false and injurious charges about honest men's lives and deaths. When Mr. Batman was alive, he couldn't tolerate being thought of as a false or deceitful fellow, even though his actions said just that to everyone near him. So, do you think his associates and family who survive him and walk in his very steps will approve? of the sentence pronounced against him by this book? 
Won't they, by preference, imitate Korah? Dathan and Abiram's friends even speak evil against me for condemning him, as they did to Moses for the execution. But on the next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. Numbers 16, verse 41. I know those who hunt wild boars run risks, and so does the man who writes about Mr. Badman's life. He needs the protection of a coat of mail and a spear, because Mr. Badman's surviving friends will know what he's done. But I had to do it, and at this time I had to play at the hole of these asps. If they bite, they bite. If they sting, they sting. Christ sends his lambs in the midst of wolves, not to be like them, but to bear clear testimony against their bad deeds. The one who does this needs to walk with the guard and have a sentinel stand at his door. The flesh would certainly be glad to have such help, and a spiritual man can tell how to get it. But I am stripped naked of these things, and yet I am commanded to be faithful in my service for Christ. Well, I've said what I've said, and now let come on me what will. Job 13, verse 13. True, the Bible says, chasten not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Proverbs 9, verse 8. And he that chastens a scorner brings shame unto himself, and he that chastens a wicked man brings himself a blot. Proverbs 9, verse 7. But what would happen in that case? Open rebuke is better than secret love, Proverbs 27, verse 5, and he who receives it will afterwards find it to be true. So then, whether Mr. Badman's friends rage or laugh at what I've written, I know that the better end of the staff is mine. My endeavor is to stop a hellish course of life and to save a soul from death, James 5, verse 20. And if I meet with envy from them for doing so, when really I should be thanked, I must remember the man in the dream that cut his way through his armed enemies and so got into the beauteous palace. I must remember him and do the same myself. Before I turn my back on Mr. Badman's friends, I still have four things I want to offer for their consideration. Number one. Suppose that there is indeed a hell. Not that I question its existence any more than I do whether there is a sun to shine, but for the sake of argument with Mr. Badman's friends, I say, suppose there is a hell. The scripture speaks of one which is at the farthest distance from God and life eternal, where the worm of a guilty conscience never dies, and where the fire of the wrath of God is never quenched. Suppose, I say, there is such a hell prepared by God, as there is, for the body and the soul of the ungodly to be tormented after this life. I say to you, just suppose it, and then tell me if it isn't prepared for you, you being a wicked man. Let your conscience speak. Isn't it prepared for you, you being an ungodly man? And do you think if you were there now, that you would be able to wrestle with the judgment of God? If that's the case, then why do the fallen angels tremble there? Scripture Can thine heart endure, or can thine hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with thee?
Ezekiel 22, verse 14. Number 2. Suppose someone whose soul is now in hell for sin was permitted to come here to live again, and that they had a gift granted to them, that with a transformed life, next time they die, they could change hell for heaven and glory. What do you say, a wicked man? You think such a person would follow the same course of life as before, and risk the same damnation he'd already experienced for sin. Would he choose to lead that cursed life all over again and kindle afresh the flames of hell upon himself, flames that would constrain him under the heavy wrath of God? No, he would not. Luke 16 insinuates it in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Reason itself would clearly abhor it and tremble at such a thought. Number 3. Suppose again that you who live and wrap yourself in sin and who haven't yet known anything but the pleasure of sin, what if an angel carried you to some place where you could easily view heaven and hell? From here you could see the joys of the one and the torments of the other. Suppose from this vantage you might have such a view of the two that it convinces you that both heaven and hell are real, just like the Word declares them to be. When brought to your home again, do you think you would choose to continue on with your former way of life, to return to your foolishness again? No. If you believe what you saw, and that belief remained with you, would your first choice be to eat fire and brimstone? Number 4. Suppose we were governed by a law that required a magistrate to inflict the penalty for every sin openly committed by you, and this penalty involved your flesh to be plucked from your bones with burning pincers. Would you go on openly lying, swearing, drinking, and doing something for unworthy motives to make money with the same delight you do now? Surely not. The fear of the punishment would make you abstain. Even when your lusts were powerful, it would make you tremble to think about the punishment you'd receive as soon as the pleasure was over. Oh, the foolishness, the desperate madness in the hearts of Mr. Badman's friends who, despite the threatening of a holy and sin-avenging God and the outcries and warnings of all good men, despite the groans and torments of those now in hell for sin, go on following a sinful course of life, even though every sin is a step of descent down into that infernal cave. Solomon's saying is so true. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3 Oh, the habitual lewdness, the excessive unlawful indulgence of lust, what you've done in England— You've corrupted our young men and turned our old men into beasts. You've deflowered our virgins and made older women foul and dirty. You've made our earth reel to and fro like a drunkard. It's in danger of being removed like a cottage, because its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and never rise again. Isaiah 24, verse 20 Oh, how I mourn for England and for the sins committed there, as I see that without repentance the men of God's wrath are about to deal with us, each having his destroying weapon in his hand. Ezekiel 9, verse 1 I've written, and with God's help I pray this flood can be stopped in England, 
If I could just see the tops of the mountains above it, I would think that these waters were abating. It is the responsibility of those who can to cry out against this deadly plague and lift up their voices like a trumpet against it so people can be roused from their sleep and flee from it as if fleeing from the greatest of evils. Sin overthrows kingdoms, it pulled angels out of heaven, and it pulls men down to hell. Who sees a house on fire and doesn't sound the alarm to warn those who live there? Who sees invaders march into the land without setting the beacons ablaze? Who sees devils, like roaring lions, continually devouring souls without crying out? Above all, when we see sin swallowing up a nation, sinking a nation, and bringing its inhabitants to worldly, spiritual, and eternal ruin, shouldn't we cry out and say, They are drunk, but not with wine? They stagger, but not with strong drink. They are intoxicated with the deadly poison of sin. If its malignity isn't allayed by wholesome methods, won't it lead soul, body, estate, country, and everything else to ruin and destruction? In and by this outcry, I will deliver myself from any guilt for the ruin of those who perish. Because a man in my position can do no more in this matter than to detect and condemn the wickedness, warn the evildoer of the judgment, and flee from there myself. But oh, how I hope that I won't just deliver myself, that many would hear and turn from sin at my outcry, so they can be saved from the death and judgment that goes with it. Scripture When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou dost not give him warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, that he might live, the same wicked man shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at thine hand. Ezekiel 3 verse 18 In the writing of this book, I've concealed most of the names of the people whose sins or punishments I've included, because neither the sins nor the judgments were all alike or out in the open. The sins of some were committed and the judgments executed, but only in secret. So I've handled the matter in the way I thought best. Not to say that I couldn't learn some of their names, I could have, but I still wasn't sure I should make them public, because I didn't want to provoke or offend their relatives who survived them. So I decided to dwell on each person and the punishment for their sins, and to make them known to the world without laying them under disgrace and contempt, which would unavoidably have happened if I had inserted their names. As for those whose names I mention, their crimes or judgments were publicly known, as often happens with things of that nature. Therefore such people have published their own shame by their sin, and God has made public his anger by taking open vengeance. As Job says, God has struck them as wicked men in the open sight of others. Job 34, verse 26 Since their sin and judgment were so conspicuous, I can't imagine that my admonishing the world about it would be to their detriment, because making these things known is intended to be a warning, 
so far as family members are concerned, so they can think about the sin in their own lives, repent, and turn to God for fear of the judgments for their sins. For the God of heaven has threatened to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons unto the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. Exodus 20, verse 5. Nebuchadnezzar's punishment for his pride was public. He was driven from kingly dignity and from among men to eat grass like an ox and to live among the beasts because of his sin. Daniel didn't hesitate to tell Belshazzar his sin to his face or in public so it could be read and remembered by generations to come. The same can be said about Judas and Ananias because their sin and punishment was known unto all the dwellers of Jerusalem. Acts 1 verse 19 When family and friends of those who have fallen by awful, public, and astonishing judgments for their sin just overlook, forget, or take no notice of such important acts of God against them and their house, it is a sign of a hopeless absence of contrition or sorrow for sin and hardness of heart. In this fashion, Daniel magnified Belshazzar's crime because he hardened his heart in pride. Even though he knew his father was brought down from his high position and made to be a companion for asses because of that very same sin, Scripture. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. Daniel 5, verse 22. Definitely a severe reproof, but severe is most fitting for a public, ongoing sin. The deceased, by their own sin and the dreadful judgments of God, became a sign. When judgment knocked at their door, they were swept like dung from off the face of the earth. So let those who are related to such a person beware, for fear that when the judgment knocks at their door for their sins, it will fall with as heavy a stroke that they find judgment without mercy instead of finding mercy in that day for their excessive, daring, and judgment-defying sins. To conclude, let those who don't want to die Mr. Badman's death take notice of Mr. Badman's ways, because his ways brought him to his end. Wickedness won't deliver the one given over to it, even if they conceal what they do by professing to be religious. As it was a sin long ago for a man to wear a woman's clothing, Surely it is a sin now for a sinner to profess to be a Christian as a cloak. Wolves in sheep's clothing swarm in England these days. Wolves, both in regard to doctrine and practice. Some people make a profession for Christ with the purpose of manipulating themselves into a job and then to establish a fortune, and, if need be, to do so dishonestly by the destruction of their neighbor. Let such people take care, because those who do such things have the greater damnation. Christian, make your profession shine with conversation according to the gospel. Otherwise you will cause damage to Christianity, bring scandal on your brethren, and give the enemies a weapon of offense. It would be better that a millstone was hanged about your neck and you were cast into the bottom of the sea. Christian, in these days, a profession according to the gospel is a rare thing. Seek after it, put it on, and keep it without a spot, white and clean, and you will be a rare Christian.
prophecy of the last time says that many professing men will be vile and worthless. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and in that which has been entrusted unto thee, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. 2 Timothy 3 verse 14 Not from lewd men or unrestrained times, but from the word and doctrine of God, according to godliness. You will walk with Christ in white. Now, God Almighty gave His people grace not to hate or malign sinners, or to choose any of their ways, but to keep themselves pure from the blood of all men, by speaking and doing according to that name and those rules that they profess to know and love for Jesus Christ's sake. Scripture Therefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of everyone. Acts 20, verse 26 John Bunyan, The Life and Death of Mr. Badman